Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Once proclaimed the eighth wonder of the world, the iconic Brooklyn Bridge was constructed between 1869 and 1883 to span the East River and connect what used to be the two independent cities of New York and Brooklyn. Applying masterful engineering, fortitude and determination, Chief Engineers John and Washington Roebling used new technological innovations to plan and build what is now one of America's greatest national landmarks. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with historian Jeff Richman, author of Building the Brooklyn Bridge. Jeff will share stories about challenges, victories, and disasters encountered by the engineers and thousands of skilled and unskilled laborers who toiled for 14 years to build the great Brooklyn Bridge. I'd now like to welcome Jeff Richmond to our show. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, well, thank you. Good to be back. Yes, exactly. You were on our season six, episode 11, A Walk Through Greenwood Cemetery. We aired that back in October. It was very well received. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing you for that. And we also enjoyed doing the research with you and taking a a rather lengthy tour of the cemetery with you. And that was just, that was terrific. But we're not here today to talk about Greenwood Cemetery. We are going to talk about another topic that is also near and dear to your heart, and that is the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we are super excited to talk with you about that. And I have in front of me your book, Building the Brooklyn Bridge, which is just a wonderful book filled with all kinds of photographs, really documenting the whole process of building that incredible historic structure that so much represents New York to us today. Yes, well, it's a uh, pleasure to be here and to discuss a topic that is very close to my heart, which is the Brooklyn Bridge. So I've been a big fan for many years. In 1983, I attended the centennial of the opening of the bridge with fireworks, appropriate fireworks that evening. And it was a a great celebration. And the bridge is a great New York City icon. So I was presented with an opportunity that sort of fell into my lap to put together this book. Uh, I have been for as long as I can remember a collector of various things, going back to baseball cards when I was a young boy and proceeding from there. And so right around 1980, I started to collect material pertaining to the Brooklyn Bridge and photographs of it, stereo views, those side-by-side images, I was able to buy a collection of lantern slides, those glass slides, uh, from, as I recall, a uh, used television store and repair place in Tennessee that put them up on eBay a number of years ago. And they were many images that no one had seen before as a collector. 
And then uh, I've been on a lot, oh, about five or so years ago. That was on eBay of many images that I had not seen before, uh, the 3D stereo views, was outbid and uh, ultimately wound up at a uh, memorial service for a collector who I had known for many years and his widow at this service introduced me to the fellow who had outbid me on those views. And we visited after that and I got to see them and asked him if he would be willing to let me use those in a book about the Brooklyn Bridge, and he agreed to do so. And then I had another friend who is as good a, a collector of New York views as anybody who agreed to let me use his images also. So this kind of fell into place. And there I was with this uh, photo document of the bridge as it was being built and able to then supplement it with archival material from the Municipal Archives, which has the original drawings of the bridge, the Museum of the City of New York, which has some wonderful photographs of the bridge as it was being built, and then Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute up in Troy, New York, which has the Roebling Collection, Washington Roebling, who is really the chief engineer who built the bridge, attended RPI, and he donated his collection. So you get to go up there and see his handwritten specifications for the next item that they needed to build the bridge. And it's really uh, quite spectacular. Wow. So you have all these resources at your fingers. Some of them you actually are in possession of and others you have access to. For those of you who may not have listened to the episode about Greenwood Cemetery, I want to talk about you a, a bit. You are a very inquisitive guy. You love history. But what is your background prior to working? Actually, you are the historian at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. That is correct? Yes. Yes. But you you have had this interest in history all your life, but you weren't always in this type of a job, were you? No, I was not. So uh, I, I graduated from law school a number of years ago and then spent 33 years practicing law as a criminal defense attorney for indigents, those who could not afford to hire an attorney but had been uh, accused of or convicted of crimes. And so I worked in Nassau County for the Legal Aid Society there. And then I worked in New York City, both at the trial level and at the appellate level. And by 2007, I had decided that that had run its course after those years, and I wanted to do something else. And given my fascination with New York City and 19th century New York and history, uh, Greenwood, where I had been working actually uh, part-time, uh, one day a week, uh, I suggested that I become the second full-time historian there. Uh, the first one of whom died in 1885, I think it was. And so there was a bit of a gap. Just a little. <laughs> between us. And uh, yes, yeah, so I got a full-time job there. That became my uh, really second career. And it has allowed me to really enjoy history at a whole different level. I know you've done a tremendous amount of research at the cemetery, and that's sort of 
sort of honed your skills to also dig into the history of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I, I've always been very interested in the Brooklyn Bridge myself because uh, since I read David McCullough's book about the bridge, and uh, I got very, very interested in it. And then when I got a hold of your book, the photographs were just incredible. But before we talk about the photographs some more, let's talk about the bridge itself. Can you give us a little history? How did the idea of the bridge come about? How did it come into play? Because it was a massive endeavor back in the uh, mid 19th century, wasn't it? Yes, it certainly was. And so you had uh, Brooklyn and Long Island stretching to the east, and then Manhattan, New York City, essentially. And there was a long history of commercial involvement between the two. And so you had farmers, certainly in the 1700s, wanted to get their produce to market and were using the Fulton Ferry to get across even before there were steam engines. They were using horses, horse-powered. They were on treadmills and they would power a ferry going back and forth. And so by the mid 19th century, you had two cities separated by the East River. Uh, New York City, the largest city in the United States and Brooklyn, which was a separate city at the time and the third largest city in the United States. And so there was a great deal of exchange between the two. Many people lived in Brooklyn, but worked in Manhattan. And there was this need for a reliable commute. And one of the problems was that the East River, particularly before the uh, climate change that we have endured and are enduring, uh, the East River would freeze regularly in the winter and that meant that either the ferries couldn't run or they were frozen in the middle of the river. And that was a not a good thing. And so there was a uh, idea, perhaps there's a better way to go about doing this, getting all these people back and forth across the East River. And the idea was of a bridge, which was thought of as a way basically of putting these ferries out of business. Uh, but the ferries did, in fact, survive into the 1940s, even though the bridge opened in 1883. What were the neighborhoods on either side of where the bridge would cross, the, the Manhattan side and the Brooklyn side? What were the, the neighborhoods like at that time? Right. And so on the Manhattan side, you had basically the businesses that were ancillary to the seaport. Mm -hmm. And so we know the uh, South Street seaport area that exists today. Uh, you had basically three, four-story buildings uh, supplying uh, those ships that were traveling around the world. And just to the west of that area was City Hall Park mm -hmm. and really the hub of uh, New York City. And then in Brooklyn, you had uh, the uh, Fulton Street going down to the water and uh, fairly low, again, three, four stories high, not much in the way of taller buildings, but pretty much commercially packed there and also residences 
uh, through that area. Okay, so the idea comes up for this bridge. It certainly makes sense. It's funny, when you mentioned about the, the river freezing over and preventing the ferries from crossing, I never thought of that. I mean, really, that what a huge issue that is. I'm sure they couldn't skate across it. It's probably too dangerous to do that uh, or, or walk across it, but there was a huge need for this. It, was, it certainly made sense. But how was the money raised to build this bridge? You know, were there private investors involved? Was it a joint municipal effort? What what was the basis for fundraising and things like that? Hmm. All right. Well, let me just go back for a second in terms of the danger. And so one of the dangers was when the East River would freeze, you might be marooned in New York City, but live in Brooklyn. And so you might take the risk of walking across the ice of the river and then the river might start to thaw or the ice might be broken apart by the East River Tidal Estuary. And so the tide could smash up the ice. And so that created danger for people beyond the inconvenience of just being stuck in the middle of the river. Absolutely. With, with respect to your question about funding, the uh, legislature, New York State Legislature, authorized the East River Bridge Company in the 1860s. I think it was 1867, 1868. And it was chartered as a corporation that would issue stock. And so it issued stock, and the primary stockholders were New York City and the city of Brooklyn. There was certainly more impetus from the uh, political leaders of Brooklyn who felt that this would be a key to development. They had empty land, which Manhattan had little of. Uh, the concept of going up was not yet current in the 1860s. But Brooklyn, certainly particularly to its east side, had this land where people could build houses and live and with a bridge that would supply a convenient and reliable transportation could commute to work in Manhattan. Got it. Actually, in the title of your book, you mentioned the years uh, 1869 to 1883. So that's how long it took to actually build the Brooklyn Bridge. So you're talking about right after the Civil War, now, you mentioned the city of Brooklyn, the city of New York. Brooklyn was a separate city at that time, right, when the bridge started its construction? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it, it was some time after that that it that became part of New York City. 1898. And it actually, so there was a referendum. And as I recall, Brooklyn voted just by several hundred votes to join New York City. No kidding. Now, Brooklyn's the place to be now. That's like a really up and coming place. I know a lot of people always talking about going into Brooklyn now or looking to live in Brooklyn. And I'm sure it's very expensive in parts of Brooklyn. It certainly was a different city. It was a, a separate city. So they, they came together and there were people obviously going back and forth, back and forth. Let's talk about the construction starting in 1869. Obviously, the planning must have started well before that. 
You mentioned the name Roebling. Can you tell us about the Roebling family and the role they played in building the Brooklyn Bridge? Sure. So there were uh, essentially three members of the family who played key roles in the construction. There was John Roebling, who had grown up in Germany, had trained as an engineer, decided that Germany was not for him, that the red tape and the bureaucracy uh, were such that he could get nothing done, and decided uh, to lead a group of about 20 people who were just going to leave Germany. Uh, so he and his brother had saved up money. They came across. They went to the area of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and bought 6,000 acres there and developed a small town called Saxonburg. And that's where he settled. He declared himself a farmer, though he had never farmed a day in his life. After a year, uh, he decided farming was not for him, turned the farming over to his wife, who apparently did a very nice job farming. And he became a surveyor and then an inventor in terms of manufacturing wire rope and then became the leading suspension bridge builder in the world. Incredible. Did he have any engineering training in Germany? Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. And so he had studied the bridges there such as they were. They certainly were not at the level of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, his son, Washington, his oldest son, had worked with his father on bridges. His idea of a summer vacation was working on the Niagara Gorge Bridge or the uh, Allegheny Bridge in Pittsburgh or the Cincinnati Bridge, Cincinnati-Covington across the Ohio River. And he was 32 years old in 1869 when the construction of the bridge actually began. He took over from his father. His father uh, had the bad luck of essentially getting himself killed by the ferry. And so they went out in June of 1869 to mark where the center line of the bridge would be. And John Roebling, the father, was out there. He had drawn up the plans for the bridge. Uh, he had spoken at times of deferring to his son on the construction. Uh, he felt he was getting a little bit on in years, but he was the name that the bridge company wanted behind the project. But he was out at the Fulton Ferry on the Brooklyn side, and a ferry was coming into the slip. And he stood up on one of the wooden piles and thought he was out of the way, and he was not. And his foot was crushed by the ferry against the wood. He tried to continue on as... Uh, one would expect John Roebling to do. He was a tough man, is never known to have taken a day off in his life, no vacation, just a, a workaholic, really. And he then collapsed from the pain, was carried to a doctor nearby. He then supervised the amputation of his toes with no anesthetic. Oh, boy. Telling the doctor what to do. <laughs> and then he supervised his own recovery. Uh, he was a big fan of hydrotherapy, the use of water. And he just set up this mechanism to drip water onto his damaged foot. 
And within a couple of weeks, he had lockjaw and died a tremendously painful death, leaving Washington Roebling, who was only 32 years old at the time, to build the bridge. And so they are often confused, but John planned the bridge and Washington built the bridge. And then Washington himself, during the construction, got the bends from fighting a fire in one of the caissons. And he then also essentially suffered a nervous breakdown from throwing himself so uh, hard into the construction. And so he became uh, an what he described himself as an invalid who was confined to his home up on Columbia Heights, part of Brooklyn Heights, where he could see most of the bridge as it was being built. And he had a telescope to watch the construction. So within seconds of focusing on the bridge, he could tell what the day's project was, what had to be done. And then he would send his wife, Emily, out. She became the liaison to the assistant engineers and the workers, explaining to them what to do. She became very proficient in understanding the principles of the bridge. And she really made uh, the bridge possible by making it feasible for him to control the construction at the same time uh, being unable to go out to the bridge. And so uh, miraculously, in the 14 years of the construction from 1869 to 1883, Washington Roebling, who was really supervising all of this and the genius behind it all, never set foot on the bridge during the years that it was being built. That's incredible. I want to go back to John Roebling, although he was a brilliant engineer and a hard worker, I think he probably should have uh, avoided being his own doctor, I would say, right? <laughs> I think that's a fair conclusion. Things did not go well. No, no. And I think also back in the 19th century, uh, maybe he wouldn't have been that much better off with the medical care back then. You never know. Really. Mm -hmm. He believed very much in the power of the mind over any physical situation. And so while uh, he was working on the Niagara Bridge, a uh, epidemic swept through the Buffalo area. And he was convinced that if you just didn't want to get sick, you wouldn't get sick. Uh, he was a big proponent of taking the hottest of baths and then springing out of the bath and wrapping himself in the coldest of towels. And that's how uh, he kept himself healthy, or at least that was his theory. But uh, it, it did not go well with him as Dr. Robley. No, I promise you, I will never try that ice, you know, ice cold towel after a hot bath. <laughs> I don't, it's not gonna work with me, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the Roebling family was the, despite the the problems and the health issues, that the Roeblings were the correct people to be selected to be in charge of this because, I mean, they had their own internal plan that was very effective, uh, right down to Washington Roebling having his wife really serve as the on-site person to execute his plans and keep things going. So you had these tremendous engineering minds behind the bridge, but let's talk about 
the workers, the people who actually were down on the site. And uh, there's such a your, your book talks about the, the wide variety of workers who were involved. And could you talk about those workers and what were these workers like? Mm -hmm. Interesting fellows, I think. Uh, we certainly don't have any history of any women having worked on the bridge, although I suppose it, it's possible, given that we know that women uh, did serve during the Civil War mm -hmm. with men's names. But uh, in any event, there were approximately two to 3,000 workers in total who worked on the bridge. Uh, these were laborers, jobs, uh, hard, hard work. And as a result, you had some Civil War veterans, you had some seamen who were used to being high up, primarily German, Italian immigrants, Irish, who needed jobs, really. And some who worked a day or a week and decided that the conditions were not for them and some who worked from the first day to the last day in terms of the construction projects. So uh, they were, I think, a hard drinking group. The workers were suffering from the bends, which were not scientifically understood at the time. And Washington Roebling was losing workers both to ill health and also to death, ultimately from the pressurized condition in which the workers were working. And he hired a doctor to uh, try to figure it out, what was the problem. And this doctor uh, worked for a few months. And he came very close to figuring out that the key to avoiding the bends was a slow decompression. But he ultimately concluded that the workers would not put up with it, that they after working their shift and being filthy and sweaty for hours, wanted one thing and one thing only, and that was to get to the closest bar to have a drink. And so they never really instituted a mandatory decompression protocol that might have saved some lives. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about the bends, and that's related to the work they did in uh, what is called the caissons. Right. Could you tell us about, I was going to ask you next about some of the features of the bridge that had to be worked on. Can you talk about the caissons and, and what they were and what purpose they served in building the bridge? Right. So the, the caissons, it was a technology that had been used in Europe. And in fact, Washington and Emily were sent by John Roebling to Europe for a year to study the use of caissons. And the idea was that you were gonna dig down a massive wooden box made of one foot by one foot timbers that had been strapped together with iron. And so you had this box, the box was 168 feet long by 102 feet across. And it stood anywhere between 10 and 20 feet high, depending on what time you were talking about. And these were built in uh, shipyards on the East River with an open bottom. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was you were going to launch it like a ship. You were going to float it down the East River with tugboats controlling it. 
you were going to place it where the towers, the two towers of the bridge were going to be. And then you were going to start to dig the box down. You were going to put granite stones that were going to be the tower. And so the towers that we see today, those stones were placed on top of this wooden box. And then the men went into the box through a airlock and they started to dig along the edge of the box to get the box to go into the ground. So this was the largest thing that had ever been dug into the ground in the history of humankind. And they're still down there today, miraculously. They're underneath the towers of the bridge when they reached the level at which Washington Roebling said, I'm satisfied that they're solid. They stopped digging, the men left, and then they filled it with concrete. And so they're still down there and they're down there low enough that the sea worms that would eat through a piling don't uh, indulge. They're still down there. Those caissons are still down there. Now, when those men were in there working, they were breaking apart boulders. They were they were digging. They were in like I guess damp. It was damp. There was some river water would seep in sometimes. I understand it was very hot down there and stuffy, and some of them were in there for pretty long shifts, weren't they? Yes, they were, and they started to shorten those shifts as they needed to increase the pressure. So the pressure was designed, the air pressure, to keep the water of the East River from flooding into the caissons and potentially drowning all the workers. So the air pressure pushed against that water to keep it at bay. Uh, but at the same time, these workers were, that was easily, I think, the worst of the conditions for the men. Most of them weren't wearing shirts. They were just sweating. And But I think you mentioned boulders that they encountered. They encountered mud. They encountered a garbage dump on the Manhattan side that was easy digging, but was horrendously smelly. As, as you might imagine. But they uh, persisted in this digging and uh, did get the boxes down where they needed to be. So these pressurized boxes were really the pressure on the workers from the pressurized caissons was causing internal problems, which is called, we call it the bends, right? And it could make you very, very sick. It could kill you, right? Yes, absolutely. And so some of the workers on the Manhattan side did in fact die. And Washington Roebling was presented with a dilemma. And the dilemma was that the hope was to get the case on down onto bedrock. And so one of the problems was that he had broken the, uh, caisson up into six chambers to make it more workable with partitions, wooden partitions. But if chamber one and two were on bedrock, but three, four, and five, and six weren't, you needed to keep digging. Hmm. And on the Manhattan side, they got down about 80, 90 feet into the muck and the dirt and the boulders and all of that. And 
there was an increased frequency of men dying from the bends. This expansion of nitrogen in their blood system. And they had not hit bedrock for the entire caisson. And so Washington Rolling decided that the compacted sand and gravel that was down there, he said, hadn't moved for a million years. And that if they rested the caisson on that, they should be good to go. And so given the risk of further death, he said, we're going to stop digging. We're not going any farther down. And, you know, all these years later, almost 140 years later now, uh, it's still good. So I think he uh, made the right decisions. He certainly did. So it's on bedrock on the Brooklyn side and not quite, but pretty far down into the silt and muck on the Manhattan side, but no more lives were lost. But there's certainly, I would imagine, quite a few lives lost during the entire 14 years of building the bridge. I read about one incident where there was a cable snapped and caused a really a big catastrophe. I think a couple people at least, or a few people died because of it. Could you tell us about that? And any other, any other stories that you heard about the building of the bridge that stand out? Sure. So, yeah, they were working with uh, steel wire. And at one point, a wire did break and knocked. So they were up on top of the tower at that point, uh, which was several hundred feet above the East River. And as I recall, uh, I think it was two of the workers who were knocked over by the wire, the impact of the wire as it broke, and uh, other workers who were nearby who were fortunate uh, not to be injured. And so there were, you know, there was no OSHA back then. There was, uh, there's a wonderful sketch uh, woodcut in one of the illustrated newspapers of a worker whose job it was to wave a flag when the tension of the wires was not in accord with the wires around it. It was either slack or too tight. Uh, and he's like standing up on top of a box that's kind of wedged precipitously across. And so, you know, they were making do, but they were not uh, overly careful, certainly in terms of us in 2023 looking at what they were doing. So the best estimate seems to be somewhere in the area of about 30-something uh, workers who died during the construction of the bridge. Yeah, and you, you wonder maybe how many were not reported, like how many people suffered effects later on. Yeah, it was a very typical 19th century commercial enterprise. And they, like others, were not keeping careful lists of things. And so there is no master list of here's who died and, you know, let's put a memorial up to them. It was just kind of considered part of the price of uh, building the bridge at that point. And, you know, work was hard to come by. And I think it was, uh, you know, if somebody could work and, and bring home some money for their family. And you noted in the book that they had to actually the workers had to buy their boots, I think, from the the company at cost, 
<laughs> right. That was big of them, huh? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, and they uh, had like a, a water faucet out, you know, near the work area that you could kind of lightly rinse off with. But uh, certainly, maybe you got a hook to hang your shirt on as you launched yourself into the caisson, but uh, certainly nothing close to what we'd expect today. No, and the some of the wages that well, from today's standards uh, looked really, really what we would think of as pathetic. Even if you adjust it to $20, I would, I would imagine they were still not exorbitant salaries paid to particularly the unskilled laborers who were used. Yeah, and there was some labor unrest, which management uh, fairly quickly dealt with. So Washington Roebling does, in fact, in one of his reports, write about, we never had a shortage of workers who were interested in working for us. And I think they did not pay a premium, but they did pay wages that were comparable to the wages of the time in the area. It was hard work, hard work. Uh, you know, the mid 19th century, a lot of work was incredible. What people had to deal with and the injuries, you mentioned no OSHA, the injuries that people dealt with that, you know, we might get a few days of antibiotics. Other people, you know, died from infections and things like that. So it was certainly a lot of hard work. Now the 14 years it took was that within the budgeted time frame? And how did the bridge come in against their cost estimates? Do you know? Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, there was some talk about, well, we'll be done in two years or we'll be done in five years. And so, of course, 14 years was well beyond that. Uh, it was budgeted at about five and a half million dollars initially. And that was kind of a uh, number that had just been grabbed out of the air. It was not, you know, a line item budget that determined the five and a half million. So it was pretty much of a selling point. We can get this bridge for that amount. And costs grew as the bridge progressed. But I think I did a calculation fairly recently with my inflation calculator online and as I recall, it was somewhere in the area of about $465 million in today's money, which sounds, I think, to my ear, pretty inexpensive for a uh, bridge with uh, six lanes and functioning. I think and so. a wonderful pedestrian uh, elevated promenade. Yeah, definitely. Now, I was... I'm looking at the dates of the bridge and I'm starting to think about our friend from history who's buried in Greenwood Cemetery, Mr. Boss Tweed. He didn't have his hands in any of this, did he? Was there any graft or anything like that going on with the, the bridge construction? Oh, yeah. If See McCullough, comma, David, the great bridge. Yes, he goes on at length about Boss Tweed. So actually, he became a trustee of the bridge. And he seems to have gotten a payoff in cash from the superintendent of the bridge to keep him uh, interested. And McCullough does it line. So let me just mention McCullough was certainly 
my favorite American historian. And his book, The Great Bridge, is just extraordinary and just wonderful. And it really allowed me to concentrate on the images and to tell a slightly different story while at the same time relying upon McCullough's research in terms of the construction to tell that story also. So I'm uh, deeply indebted to him. It's a wonderful book, but my book has 250 plus images, the vast majority of which uh, do not appear in McCullough's book. Going through your book, I was getting a flavor of the process and what these workers looked like. And you've even got photographs in there that you can look at through 3D glasses, which you include on the back cover of the book. And it sort of comes out at you in 3D and you see, you feel like you're actually there and, and you go along the whole process of the bridge and what the caissons looked like. And you know, as the towers gradually going up and all the, the faces and all the people. So when you, when you drive across or walk across the Brooklyn bridge in 2023, you can now picture in your mind the people who actually put this together. We take it for granted when we go across a bridge, we're complaining about the toll price or there's traffic on it or whatever. But how often do we actually pause and think of the incredible effort made to build these structures? And back 140 years ago, 140, 150 years ago, when they didn't have any of the equipment that we have today, most of it was blood, sweat, and tears, wasn't it? It absolutely was. This was the Brooklyn Bridge was a mix of cutting edge technology, the use of steel in this bridge to a greater extent than it had ever been used in a bridge construction, the use of electricity. This is the first bridge across a waterway that is lit by electric light, but at the same time, the most primitive of techniques. And so we talked, uh, we mentioned the boulders that they encountered as they were digging the caissons down. Tremendously time consuming. They, had, they were breaking them up by hand. They were pulling them inside the caissons. So if one, a boulder was up to 14 feet long, Part of it might be inside the caisson, part of it might be outside the caisson. And so they started using jacks to pull them in. And then they would split them with just hammers and steel-tipped uh, chisels. And Washington Roebling became very frustrated because it was just incredibly slow work. And so using the basic principles of science, he took a revolver down into one of the caissons with black powder and everybody stood back and he put a little charge into the revolver and fired it and looked around to see if anybody was dead or wounded and everything looked okay. And he just gradually built up the charge, firing and reloading until he reached the point where the charge was big enough to blast a boulder into pieces. And that's how he knew that it was safe to use black powder to blast apart these boulders. And they saved a tremendous amount of time on the construction by doing that. 
and turning to this. And, you know, there was no, you couldn't go on the internet and type, is it safe to use black powder inside a air pressurized caisson? Uh, you had to experiment. And that's exactly what he did. It's incredible. The, the genius, when you think of these people, like the Roeblings, if you transported them to the 21st century, where they had at their fingertips what we have today as far as information, you know, how far these people would have excelled. So uh, let's talk about opening day, 1883. What happened that day? What was it like? What kind of events were held? Yeah, so opening day is interesting, again, from the Washington Roebling perspective. Washington Roebling said, well, let's just put up a sign that says the bridge is open and we'll call it a day. He was always concerned about people, too many people being on the bridge, them marching in step and causing a vibration that was going to make the bridge collapse. But the trustees clearly wanted a grand celebration, particularly uh, Mayor Lowe of Brooklyn, Seth Lowe. And so they put together this extravaganza with speeches in the partially completed terminal on the Brooklyn side, the President of the United States, Chester A. Arthur, was there. The mayors were there. The 7th Regiment Band marched across out of step to uh, celebrate. The uh, North American fleet was there to fire salutes. And tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, came into New York City to stand along the river, to stand atop buildings, and to see this uh, wonder of its age. And so it was a grand, grand celebration climaxed by the fireworks where Roebling again, no one on the bridge for the fireworks, hosing down the wood on the bridge to make sure it didn't catch fire from the fireworks. But they did have a, a lot of steamboats that had been hired cruising underneath the bridge. So quite a spectacular day. I would think so. And well, you mentioned Roebling was worried about too many people, you know, walking across the bridge and stuff. When you think of the traffic that has gone across that bridge over the last 140 years and the, the size of the vehicles and the, just the wear and tear and the weather on it. And to, to think he was actually nervous that, you know, a bunch of people walking across it might uh, cause it to fall down. He, uh, that was a, probably an overabundance of caution in his mind, wouldn't you say? Yes. Well, he was a cautious person. Uh, so they had 13,000 miles of wire. Each wire was about the thickness of a pencil. And they spun that into the four cables. During the course of that, they were given bad wire by the contractor who was actually associated with Abram Hewitt. And uh, when they discovered that, there was concern, you know, how are we going to get this wire out? And Roebling's reaction was that he had over-engineered the wire six times. And so they could deal with leaving some bad wire in there and still having the bridge function very effectively. And so about 60 years after the bridge opened, a study was done. What has to be done to this bridge to make it viable for automobile traffic, et cetera? And the report essentially said a new coat of paint was required 
And they did, of course, do some reinforcing for the heavier load of trucks and commercial vehicles and cars. But the bridge uh, has really had very little maintenance or periodic maintenance, but very little in terms of it being really rebuilt. And so what you see is the original construction by and large. When I think of that, that's just so amazing. All those 19th century workers who, you know, rushed out of the caissons and went to the local pub to, to have a cold one. And did they realize that what they were working on would be driven across 140 years later by us? It's just mind-boggling to think about it. Jeff, how do you feel about what the Brooklyn Bridge means to New York City? What's the significance in New York's history and culture, would you say? Uh, I think it is an absolute icon. Within years, just a few years of the completion of and the opening of the bridge, it was really considered this wonderful icon. And so... In 1889, just six years after the bridge, for the celebration of George Washington's inauguration, a coin was issued. And on the one side, it had George Washington. And on the back, it had the Brooklyn Bridge, described as the eighth wonder of the world. You know, I go to the gym and I can listen to the audio of the uh, Great Bridge by McCullough. And at the gym, they have the various... uh, morning shows on the TVs. And I think without exception, those morning shows have the Brooklyn Bridge as a background. And so I think it is still considered the great symbol of New York City, both a foot in the history and the past of the city, and at the same time, something that's very current today, that it's not seen as this out-of-date icon, but it's seen as something which is very much of the current. Yes, and it's part of today's uh, culture. I mean, I, my wife Kelly and I last fall took a walk out onto the Brooklyn Bridge, first time I ever walked onto it, and I saw there were vendors on the bridge and people taking photographs and tourists and I felt like I was part of history standing there. And when we arranged to do this interview with you, I was very excited to hear about what you thought. And certainly I was excited about getting your book, which I've since obtained. And I've just been just going through and thoroughly enjoying the wonderful photographs. What a huge collection. What a project uh, this must have been. What actually inspired you to put this book together? I know you had all these photographs and everything like that, but Putting a book together is a lot of work. What prompted you to do it? It is a lot of work. Well, I I just thought that I had been presented with this unique opportunity that uh, meeting uh, Michael Ash, who had these stereo views of the bridge, uh, many of which, even though I had been collecting similar images for 40 years, I had never seen before. And so I felt that I was in a position that no one else was to show this story through these photographs. And so you mentioned before the 3D images, which are very close to my heart. I'm fascinated by those. And as close as we could possibly get to 
the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s and the people then who followed the construction of the bridge. And so you could not reproduce photographs in newspapers back then. It was not until I think 1882 that they started to do that. But they would use woodcuts that were based sometimes on photographs and sometimes artists on the scene. But here you were following the news as it occurred in terms of the latest section of construction, segment of construction. And also they sold millions of these stereo views where people in their Victorian parlors, you know, they weren't on the internet, they weren't watching uh, Hulu or whatever, uh, or Netflix. They were looking at images of Paris and Egypt and of the Brooklyn Bridge being built. And so as close as we can get to being on the scene of the bridge and seeing it come up out of the ground are these 3D images where you can move your head from side to side and see the construction move with you. And it's very much of a we are there kind of experience. And so if people love the Brooklyn Bridge, as they should, and love history, as I think they should also, I think this is a uh, unique opportunity to have all of these images gathered together, where one image whether it's a sketch or a 3D image or a large print photograph, allow you to really understand and to have this you are there experience. Well said, Jeff, really. The, the book is great. Building the Brooklyn Bridge, 1869 to 1883 by Jeff Richmond. Terrific work. Can I ask you what's next on your list of projects? Well, I've been asked, and we're in the process of discussing this. I, the first book I wrote was in 1998, Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, New York's Buried Treasure. And it was revised in 2006, but the revision was primarily limited to images that were updated based on restorations that had occurred in those uh, years. But uh, I've been asked to do a uh, revision of that book. And so we have 25 years of updating to do and developments that have occurred, different perspectives that we have now uh, in terms of diversity at the cemetery that we didn't have back then people who have been interred there in the last 25 years, such as the journalist Pete Hamill, the artist Chuck Close, and uh, some other fascinating people. So I'm hoping I just wrote a book proposal on that, and I'm hoping that gets approved and that I can launch myself into that. Well, we're looking forward to the next book coming out. So how can people find out more about uh, your work at Greenwood Cemetery, as well as uh, your books. The cemetery has a uh, website that has a great deal of information on it. So that's green-wood.com. 
and uh, there is a good deal of history on there. Civil War soldiers, we have found about 5,200 Civil War soldiers that we've identified and written biographies for each of them. Uh, we're currently involved in a World War II project where we've had about 350 World War II veterans that we've identified, many of them through tips from their families and wonderful photographs that we've collected from the families of these individuals, both in uniform and later in life, and their gravestones. And also we have World War I, uh, about 200 individuals and their biographies there. So there's that. And we also have tours that we do through the year, primarily in the nicer seasons uh, of spring and fall. And uh, so there's always uh, something going on at Greenwood. And uh, people should check the website for the calendar. Jeff, I've really enjoyed speaking with you again. And thank you for all the work you do to keep history alive. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure working with you on this. Okay, Jeff. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.